0: If you'll start turning over to First Peter chapter four. We'll be in First Peter chapter four verses seven through eleven this morning. If you'll stand and join me as I read God's word this morning. First Peter four seven through eleven. The end of all things is at hand. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go to God in prayer here this morning. Our Father, uh, we want to glorify you in everything that we do. You are worthy to be glorified. We bless you this morning for adopting us in in Christ. We ask you this morning that you would, by the power of the Spirit, cause us to become more like Christ, Uh, to seek your face more fervently in prayer as he did, to love the saints with a a sacrificial love like his. Father, we all eagerly wait for his return that we could uh, truly see him as he is and be like him. And that we would no longer have to to deal with that corruption of our nature and that we could share in, in untainted fellowship. And while we wait, Father, we pray that you would keep us watchful, temperate, par- prayerful, loving and serving uh, to the glory of your grace. And we ask come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. 2 weeks we were Uh, Encouraged to put on the mind of Christ, Peter pointed us to the shortness of life when he said, spend the rest of your time no longer for the passions of human flesh. And he said that the past time was enough for doing what the Gentiles like to do, and the the remainder of our time should be unto the will of God. He kind of wrapped up those verses by pointing our attention to the reality of judgment, and that we are preserved by the gospel. And his point really was a largely a negative point. He's basically said there's not much time left, therefore don't do this. Well, now today he's going to say there's not much time left, do do these things. So I wonder if we took a survey how people would respond if we asked If you knew for certain that the end was going to happen, how would you spend the rest of your days? You know, what kind of reactions would we get from that? Live large, go out with a bang, maximize my pleasure maybe, um, frantically gather supplies and and get into my bunker to to survive the apocalypse, uh, you know, throw together a judgment is coming sign and hit the local stoplights. You give everything away and then live in a cardboard hut and just wait, you know. And most responses to, to the conclusion of all things, and really they aren't hypothetical, we've seen all of those played out in reality, they're either centered on the self or they're just, they're plain loony. When people become convinced that the end is approaching, more often than not, all rational thought seems to just fly out the window. Well, it's part of my aim this morning to convince you that the end is approaching, but I hope we'll be able to keep our sanity. On the other hand, the other problem, perhaps the more prevalent one, is apathy. We just live as though the world will go on forever the way it always has. We can become uh, practical atheists or annihilationists, almost as if we live as God doesn't really exist or or that at the end of all things we'll die, die and nothing beyond that will happen. Or perhaps it'd be better to say we live like deists. God does exist, but he doesn't really interact with me in my life. Well, we know God is very active in his creation. And he has expectations of us, and he interacts with us, and he is bringing all things to a close. Peter here sees this teaching as absolutely impactful for the Christian life. And so he begins this section with this declaration, the end of all things is at hand. And then he'll proceed to tell us how that should affect our existence. So this morning we'll kind of follow Peter's outline first by looking at this doctrine that he presents, the end of all things is at hand. And then we'll look at how it impacts our lives and and conclude uh, with the purpose that he supplies. So my hope is that we'll all leave this room with a deeper awareness of the approaching end, the nearness of the end, and also be better equipped to lead a temperate, prayerful, loving, hospitable, serving life in Christ to the glory of God as we wait for Jesus to come back. So let's begin with the doctrine that he presents, this declaration. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. So to state the obvious, Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. What does he mean the end of all things is at hand? How at hand was it 2,000 years ago? You know, Was he wrong when he said the end of all things is at hand? Maybe he was referring to the fall of Jerusalem in 8070. That's what some people think. Um, but really, I don't know how that can be called the end of all things. And also he was writing to people in Asia Minor, probably Gentiles at that. So I don't think that's what he means there. I think what he's describing here is what John says in, in 1 John when he says, Children, it is the last hour. Right now is the last hour. All of the apostles communicate in some way that time is short, that the second coming of Christ is at hand, that the judgment is around the corner. They seem genuinely to think that Jesus could come back at any moment And and just because they died before that promise was fulfilled doesn't make them misguided or misinformed. It makes them Christian. It's the natural Christian disposition to hope for and cling to the arrival of Jesus. Calvin says it well. He says we must remember this principle, that from the time when Christ once appeared, there is nothing left for the faithful, but with suspended minds ever to look forward to his second coming. So I think it's biblically accurate to call that entire time between Christ's ascension and his second arrival the final hour or the last days. And it's not unnatural for Peter at all to say the end of all things is at hand, nor is it a problem for 2,000 years to have passed without fulfillment. It could be a million years and we would still be in that period of The end of all things is at hand. This age we are in abuts the ascension of Christ on the one end and his second coming on the other. So we live in that age, the age where at any moment Jesus could return and thus the end of all things is always at hand until he does come back. I think we can draw some important lessons from Peter's statement as well as the fact that a lot of time has passed since he wrote it. I think it's important to understand that this is not a Santa Claus is coming to town type of situation. It's not better watch out, better not cry, Jesus is coming back soon. (laughs) Peter's not threatening us here to obedience, saying you better shape up before he gets here. I like what Edmund Clowney says. He says, the end is near. Our contemporaries expect to see that warning crudely lettered on a sandwich board carried by a figure with long hair and dirty sandals. The figure appears often enough in cartoons and advertising, but rarely on city streets. Yet the smug assumption that only a crazy would prophesy the end has begun, the end has begun to ring hollow in our atomic age. He's writing in 1988. How different is the Christian expectation of the end from the foreboding that sees atomic annihilation? The Christian looks for the Lord who will bring judgment, justice, and the wonder of a new creation. So the prospect of the arrival of of Christ is pure, undiluted hope for the Christian. That's what we hope for. That's what we live for. As Christians living in the final hour... We will live, as new creations in Christ, always in eager expectation for the arrival of Jesus, which ought to change how we think and how we live. We should live now in the command of Jesus Christ. He said, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So Peter's doctrine here is clear. What he's trying to present to us is the end of all things is at hand. And having announced this doctrine of the nearness of the end, he goes on now to exhort the Christian, describing for us what this anticipatory life looks like lived out. So the first exhortation he has for us is essentially, keep your head on straight. Verse 7, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. Essentially, be temperate. Keep your head on straight, which is, again, the exact opposite of what most people do when the end is in view. We are to be clear-minded, not in a huff, patiently waiting for the return of the Lord, keeping everything in its proper position, our priorities in line with reality. Notice the contrast between this exhortation And the way the world lives, as described in chapter 4, verse 3, he says they live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Far from sobriety and self-control. We can become, as people, inebriated by the distractions and the desires of the world. But it's that imminence of the end that keeps us sober and clear headed. Even as Christians, we often lose sight of reality and become caught up in our own little world. You know, concerns about jobs or family or finances, relationships, they cloud our vision and begin to make things fuzzy. We can get so focused on our earthly existence that we forget that this world is not really all there is and that we are sojourning through it. He says, the end of all things is at hand. That for me is a clarifying statement, one that that clears out the cobwebs and gets me thinking straight again. It reorients my priorities. And Jesus could return at any moment. And when he does, suddenly all of these things which kind of fog our perspective become small, (laughs) insignificant. All the woes and distractions of life melt away, and Jesus will be front and center in full view. And I think Peter's saying here, live and think and live your life as though Jesus might come back this afternoon. Keep your head clear, be temperate, be sober, be sensible. There's that story of Calvin. You know, Calvin had terrible health ailments and people would encourage him to, to rest. And <laughs> Basically, he would say, what, what, do you want Jesus to find me idle when he comes back? <laughs> This next phrase that Peter gives us here is kind of unexpected, I think. You'd expect him to say, be sober and be sensible so you can make a clear, cogent defense of the Christian faith, so you can think and defend well. But he says, be sober and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers or for the purpose of prayer. It's a fascinating thing to say. You know, Jesus is absent from us right now. Though He's gone, we continue to have a vital relationship with Him. And that relationship is to be the forefront of our lives. Communication with God is absolutely critical for living the Christian life in these final hours. And I think if there's one thing that disrupts communication with God, it's our own fog. You sit down to pray for five minutes and you'll be interrupted And the culprit will almost always be your own thoughts. At least for me. It's because I think we are inebriated by care of the world. Wrapped up in a nonsensical anxiety. We're concerned with the pursuit of our own pleasure or the accomplishment of our own ambitions that we fail to pray as we ought to. And that's why Peter exhorts us to be temperate in mind for the sake of our prayers. As we look to that end of all things, our minds begin to clear, and we recall there's much more to this life. This world is just the land of my sojourn on the way to that better homeland. Suddenly, other things become more important for us. Suddenly, prayer for the advancement of the gospel in the world, prayer for pastors, teachers, and missionaries prayer for the faithful churches in our area, prayer for repentance and faith for unbelievers, or just thanksgiving and adoration to God, prayer for unity of the saints, prayer for the return of the Lord. All of those things come into greater focus, and our own problems are greatly diminished. Not that they don't matter, but they also come into focus. Rather than seeing them as obstacles in our path that we've chosen, they are part of the trail which God has chosen for us. God has laid out these things en route for us on the way to the celestial city. So our prayers for even ourselves change. You know, a man in comfort and luxury doesn't need a whole lot. But a sojourner toiling towards something, something better, prays for strength for the journey. Wisdom for difficulties and protection and perseverance. So until the day arrives that we are see the Lord, we pray not as people who have arrived, but as people who are eagerly anticipating arrival around every bend. We're to be sensible and sober for the sake of our prayers. And in so doing, we maintain our relationship with God as we anticipate the end of all things. But we do not sojourn alone with God. We are also to maintain our relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter goes on to say, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So in a time and place, especially where Peter's audience was being persecuted, pressured for their faith, Peter promotes an intensity of unity. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. He echoes what he said in chapter 1, verses 20, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The Christian life is a life of community. When we were born again, we were born into a family, not just the family of the Father and the Son, but of many sons and daughters adopted by the Father with us. We are to love one another, not begrudgingly, not in word only, but in earnestness and in word and in deed. So the reason he says, for this love, is that love covers a multitude of sins. That struck me as a weird thing to say also. Love covers a multitude of sins. In what sense? Does it atone for your sins if I love you? Or does it atone for my sins and cover them up somehow? Perhaps he's saying here, in love you fulfill the second most important commandment, that half of the law, love your neighbor. Maybe if we love well, The rest of our sins are in some sense erased or forgotten. That type of interpretation would please many in our day. You know, you could say it doesn't matter so much what you do so long as you love and affirm people. Then you're free to do as you wish. I don't think that's what he's saying. Uh, I think the meaning of this statement becomes clear when we see that Peter is alluding to a proverb. Probably maybe a proverb you grew up on or heard Jesus talk about. Proverbs uh, 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. I think the parallelism makes Solomon's meaning plain here. Hatred, on the one hand, stirs the pot, brings up all offenses to the surface causing strife for everyone. Love, on the other hand, bears no record of wrongs. Love forgives. Love lets things go. Love does not bear a grudge. Love covers over sin rather than keeping a list of debts to be repaid. This love is essential to the Christian life. The Christian family, as a human family, is is a messy Family, a family full of sinners. Notice what he says, love covers a multitude of sins. We're going to have to get over a whole lot if we're going to live in unity. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you've been burned. Probably many times, but you've also burned. We have to forgive, we have to let things go. Our bond is greater than our squabbles. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, that's not to say we let sin go unchallenged. Sin is sin, and it's the duty of brothers to hold each other to God's standards. Iron sharpens iron. But in the end, we have to return in love to what Paul lays out for us in Colossians 3. He says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. So as we sojourn and anticipate uh, the conclusion of all things, let's journey in the unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace. An extension or an application of this brotherly love a means by which this love is carried out, is what I'm calling happy hospitality. He says in verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In Peter's day, from what I understand, it was, hospitality was essential to the spread of the gospel. Quite literally, the Greek word here is a compound word. It means love strangers. And from what, I understand inns and, and hotel-type places in that day were shady. They were immoral places, not somewhere a missionary or an evangelist would want to go. And so they had to rely on the hospitality of the saints as they traveled to various cities. We can see this played out in the Bible. You can turn to Third John. How often do you hear that? Turn to Third John. Third John 5-8 through John tells them, Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we... May be fellow workers for the truth. If you flip over just one page probably, in second John we see some warnings about these type of people. Verses eight through ten Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but we may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. And we also, there's a document called the Didache from very early on for Christian instruction, gave very specific instructions about how to deal with these traveling preachers and missionaries. And so we know from these things that hospitality was integral, integral, to the life of the early church as it is today. We see from third uh, and second John that the, the people giving this hospitality were in fact participating in the spread of the gospel. And I think we can make application here to community life in the modern church, but I think Peter more than anything else here is saying we, we need to give of ourselves and of our comfort without grumbling so that Christ's church will be advanced. Extend yourself to the brethren. Our homes and our possessions are not given to us primarily for us. God has given them to us to promote himself and to advance his cause in the world. I think it will look different for everyone in their giftings and their s- scenarios, but we ought to be thinking to ourselves, how can we apply this today? How can we do this today? Circumstances are not the same as they were then, but our homes and possessions are still meant to serve the purposes of God. So perhaps we do be more conscious about fellowship in each other's homes. The elders have talked about this a lot, the challenge of maintaining community in a church with members spread so far. I think hospitality goes a long way. Or perhaps we, we host a study even inviting people we don't know well, though it may be uncomfortable. I think there's a wide variety of opportunities to use the blessings God has given us to His glory, if we keep our eyes open. Now, if we're given these temporal blessings for the sake of God and the sake of others, that's also true of our personal gifts, the gifts God has given us. He says in verse 10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one, as by the strength that God supplies. Now notice he doesn't say here, as each possesses an innate talent, or as each has developed a skill over many years of work. He says, as each has received a gift... The gifts God has given are for him so that we cannot boast in ourselves. But I know personally how prone I am to be like King Nebuchadnezzar. Is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power? I begin to think that the things I am good at define me. I think that I am high and mighty, that my successes are the fruit of my own strength and my own skill. Or conversely, with just as much pride in my heart, I think I'm a failure because I'm not good. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. Forgetting that it is God who uniquely gifts and calls us. And that our gifts are just that. They're gifts. They're something to be grateful for. To to make us glory in God. Moreover, they are used to be used to benefit others. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Our gifts are given for the express purpose of serving the body. Calvin says, But this consideration is also very important, that the Lord hath divided so divided his manifold graces that no one is to be content with one thing and with his own gifts, but everyone has need of the help and aid of his brother. This, I say, is a bond which God hath appointed for retaining friendship among men, for they cannot live without mutual assistance. Thus it happens that he who in many things seeks the aid of his brother ought to communicate to them more freely what he has received. This bond of unity has been observed and noticed by heathens, but Peter teaches us here that God has designedly done this, that he might bind men one to another. So we need the church. We need each other. There's no such thing as self-sufficiency in God's economy. He has intentionally made us good at some things and absolutely horrible at other things so that we would rely on each other. And this is a wonderful thing because in using our gifts, we are stewards of God's grace. It strikes me as strange every time, but that God uses us, that we are stewards of God's grace. Mm -hmm. So if we're keeping our gifts to ourselves, we're depraving the saints of God's grace. To put it in positive terms, when we contribute our gifts to the church, we are given the privilege to be a channel of God's grace to his people. Notice also here, there are not the gifted and the ungifted. He says, as each has received a gift. Gifting doesn't have to mean standing up front or taking a formal office in the church. It could be hospitality or having a servant's heart or encouragement or any number of things, even small things. But God has given gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Peter here gives us two examples. He says, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So it seems to me that these examples reflect kind of the two offices of the church, elder and deacon, teaching and service. But these are examples for which we are to apply the truth across all of our gifts. And Here is what I want us to see from these examples. We are to rely on God in our giftings. So God doesn't just give us a gift and then let us do with it what he wants. It is a perpetual supply of God's grace which allows us to exercise our gifts. The one who speaks must rely on God. The one who serves must rely on God's strength. God is both the giver of gifts and the sustainer of our gifts. And all of this is unto His glory. That's the purpose in all of this, God's glory. Verse 11, the second half. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So all of these things that we have been called to this morning, temperance, prayer, love, hospitality, service, these things are not things which we come by easily or naturally as sinners. We should be encouraged because in these things that are difficult for us, we glorify God. And there is no higher purpose for which to live. The chief end of man is to glorify God to enjoy Him forever. In living the Christian life as described by Peter in these verses, which really is kind of a summary of the Christian life, We show forth God's grace in the world. We look to Him for our joy. The enjoyment of God Himself is superior to us than the enjoyments the world has to offer. And so we live simple, sober lives unto His glory. And Peter says, To God belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. These traits, these things he says are God's, are... His things. There's nothing we can do to give them to Him. He already owns glory and dominion. That is a description of God as He is. We do not make Him glorious, but we do point to His intrinsic glory. And we do so, He says, through Jesus. It is only in our new life in Christ that we are able to live and serve as we're called to live and serve here. We bring glory to God because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God is glorified in our temperance, in our prayers, our love, our hospitality, our service, because it is he who works in us. So, the end of all things is at hand. I exhort each of us this morning to live as sojourners, to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance that race that is set before us. Whatever distraction is is clouding our heads, whatever pleasures intoxicate our, our bloodstream, we lay them aside, We be sensible and sober so that we can, in complete reliance on God, pray. Let us not try to take this sojourn alone or to leave our brothers and sisters without aid. We need each other. Be hospitable, serve one another with the gifts that we've been given, and let us earnestly love one another. Maintain that intensity of unity which belongs to the sons and daughters of God and all to the glory of God through Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Take our hymnals again and I put my book. in what's the number? Six ninety one. Six ninety oh. Nine nine. Six ninety one.